Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. When we look back on our lives and think about the things that matter to us, sometimes achievements will figure in there, but a lot of times it'll be like, oh, this play that I worked on with friends that nobody came to and didn't sell any tickets. Like, oh, this D&D game where we came up with these hilarious jokes and you know what? We didn't record it. It wasn't a podcast. It wasn't, it wasn't something for anybody else. Those things like make up like the real like tapestry of our lives. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Buckle up your (laughs) seatbelts. folks and friends because we've got some new and noteworthies for you strap yourself into your snuggie or plush (laughs) robe yes yes snuggies love that throwback (laughs) (laughs) all right we're gonna kick it off with our patreon monthly shout outs this is our special thank you to the folks who are subscribed at the name in the credits tier or above over on patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod for the month of april those fine people are Yinka, Val, and Jane. Thank you so much to you three. We uh, we really appreciate you and everything that you're doing for us. If you, a uh, listener who is not Yinka, Val, or Jane, want to be like those three and get your name in the credits, you can head over to Pixel Therapy Patreon, where you can check out our plethora of perks that start at just $2 a month and gets you a monthly bonus episode, including our May release, which dropped just last week, uh, in which Spencer and I take Quantric Foundry's Gamer Motivation Profile Survey. So uh, fancy. Yeah, we we just, you know, we needed to figure out just exactly what kind of gamers we even are. And, you know, if I'm being honest, Spencer, I already went in and changed a few <gasps> answers. So, oh my God, you would. anxiety for you. I'm that's... just like, okay, throws it away. Next thing. <laughs> uh, that's anxiety for you. So, if that sounds like something you'd like to hear, uh, then pop on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod and sign up for only $2 a month today. Of course, if that's not in the cards for you, no worries, because there are lots of other ways to support the show. And one of those is, of course, rating and reviewing us on your podcast platform of choice. Spencer, it's happened again. It's happened? Yes, it has happened again, uh, which is, and the it is that we've got (laughs) another five-star review over on Apple Podcasts from a lovely reviewer. He goes by the handle ForgetMeNots24. And we shall not. We shall not forget you, forget-me-nots, because you wrote, best gaming podcast I have come across, exclamation mark, best gaming podcast I have come across, exclamation mark. I found this podcast accidentally when I saw someone on Instagram post about it, and I was initially drawn by the cover art. Oh, a shout out to at Jello Demon slash Czar, um, Czar Sakura. They are freaking amazing and did our cover art, so Thank you for, thank you, Zar, for making such a great album cover that it just pulled someone right in. <laughs> literally, literally brought in a listener. Uh, I thought to myself, it looks quirky, and the art style makes me feel like it will be a safe space. And <laughs> oh, was I right? 
Spencer and Jamie have created a beautiful space in which they discuss and unpack games in a nuanced way, being able to hold both their love of gaming and criticism of the industry, and I think that is precious. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) They discuss topics so close to my heart, and it is nice to have a gaming space that acknowledges and discusses queerness, race, disability, etc., with so much empathy and humanity, while also tying it in with the emotional experience of gaming and how we relate to games. I think one of my favorite things about it is the fact that a discussion about a game is never just flat and dry. Mechanics are discussed not only in respect to how they feel and play, but with respect to what they what do they say? Are they accessible? Same goes for narrative. Always looking at the bigger picture. Anyway, basically, I love this podcast and you should give it a go. You'll feel right at home and safe. Holy cow. I've never felt so seen. Uh, Yeah, that was such a nice review. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that for us. Forget me not. Yeah, there's actual there's like an actual little tear forming in my eye because I just that the way I feel precious. I'm glad that you find us precious because I feel so held yeah. by your review. <laughs> 100%. You. Yeah. And, and like, I don't know, it's just nice to know that we're making uh, a space where you do feel safe and where you feel uh, represented. And I don't know. Yeah. I feel like we do make a, a big effort to try to like hold all of the complications of the things that mm. we're talking about in our hands at the same time. And uh, yeah, so this, still keep uh, it light and cute. And so, yes, <laughs> still make this, you know, like actually enjoyable to listen to and, you know, not the opposite. So thank you so much for your kind words and for taking the time to write that to us. It means a whole hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reviews like this, you know, we've said it before, but these are really important for the growth and sustainability of what we're doing here. Um, so if, uh, if you do have something to say about the show and you have a moment to drop us a rating or review, we do greatly appreciate it folks. And, uh, we may just have to read it on the show to let you know how much we appreciate you. Mm-hmm. Finally today, I have an update for everyone. <gasps> As folks know, uh, Spencer and I did a little little fantasy draft over on FantasyCritic.game, where we picked the games that we thought would review the best this year. Uh, and I have a little update for folks on where things stand. Um, Spencer, how does it feel to have my foot up your ass? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, depending on the context. I, hold up. This is another thing I completely forgot about. <laughs> <laughs> smooth brain it's only study valley and coffee and sleep i'm like where am i who am i but, okay omg that was just real what's the update <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i don't know i'm not actually a competitive person but i do enjoy some trash talk um <laughs> Like this, the second though, like someone's like really competitive, I'm like, never mind, I yield and I yeah. show my belly, and it's, <laughs> it's like, you can win, I don't care. Um, so yeah, so where things stand right now over on fantasycritic.games, uh, Meow Meow Beans, uh, which is Spencer's illustrious <laughs> publisher, uh, is sitting at uh, fat 19.1 po- points right now, and that is off of two game releases. Okay. Uh, that we mentioned last time, which is It Takes Two and Oddworld Soulstorm. However, uh, I have had three game releases oh, no. uh, at this point. Uh, I So Monster Hunter Rise uh, was my first one. Uh, I also picked up Returnal uh, a couple weeks ago when I saw the previews were looking good. And uh, Resident Evil Village just came out today. So the yeah. score might fluctuate a little bit, but at this point, I'm sitting at 47. Oh, my 
and a half points. <laughs> okay. Oh my God. I need to go. I need to, I'm just living in my own little fantasy world. You're so smart going and looking at what's coming out and updating your thing. OMG. Um, uh, have you played Returnal at all? I haven't. And honestly, I'm probably not going to that game. The hard games. Scary. First of all, just it, it looks a little scary, but I'm more just turned off by how punishing people are saying mm. it is. And I'm glad that folks are into that. If that is what you're interested in, please pursue it. I'm not. This is not me like hating on anybody, but I just don't want a game that I might have to put three plus hours into to just die mm. and not really get anything from it. And I've heard a, I've heard some folks comparing it to Hades. Yeah. But then in the way that they're talking about it, I look, I've played Hades. I haven't played Returnal. Maybe it's an apt comparison. But I've also heard folks saying that Returnal does not give you like progression across deaths in the same way that Hades does, which I feel like kind of misses the point about what made Hades so special, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was that dying didn't feel like failure because it felt like you were still progressing. And I get that this is like... This is a roguelite thing. Like yeah. we could we could talk about how roguelites work all goddamn day to like really get to the bottom of it. In general, it's not a genre that appeals to me a lot as someone who like does like to feel like I'm progressing when I'm playing yeah. a game. Um and I know progression can like manifest in a lot of different ways, but for me personally, like having to do the same thing over and over again, um just it doesn't uh even though you are getting better at the mechanics, you're getting better at the tools that you're presented with, you're getting better at dodging the mm-hmm. enemy's attacks and learning the enemy's attacks. I don't like the idea that I could play a game for 90 minutes, two hours, three hours, get introduced to a new enemy mm-hmm. and not be given an opportunity to really learn how that enemy works before mm-hmm. I'm punished for failing at it. <clears throat> Ooh, I and it does sound like that's a thing that this game does. And it's something that Hades would do too, to some extent, right? If you run, you, sure. you get into that new boss fight, but there is still something that felt more accessible about Hades than than this one. So, no, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not going to play Returnal. Are you going to play it? Um, I'll probably watch some streamers play it because yeah. I just get really stressed out and anxious um, playing games with a lot of shooting and then mm-hmm. things where there's like monsters coming for me really quickly and like again like not yucking anyone's yums like I do I do appreciate the sort of the discipline that it takes to Mm -hmm. um you know identify those patterns and get into a zone where you're uh like you're really immersing yourself in the game and um getting better and better and better like I can definitely see how that's rewarding and I know there's people that get a lot out of um the kind of repetition of these kinds of games um but I think I tried to play control and just in the trainings section where I was shooting my, not even a real gun, but like mm-hmm. a mind gun, yeah. I was getting all stressed out. And so yeah. I just don't think I like guns, but I like watching people. Also, I just, I get so scared of aliens. And so um, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those times where I will just watch someone else and support them from afar. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, there's also been, this game has triggered the discourse. Uh-oh. The capital D discourse. I don't know. It's just, it's a lot About of folks what? having, uh, well, for one thing, the game is really inaccessible, like specifically to folks who have oh. disabilities. Um, there's no sit, you can't save mm. during a run mm-hmm. in the game. So anyone who might not be able to just sit and play for three hours straight, right? you're screwed. Um, there's no difficulty settings at all. There's no way to, there's no assist mode, no way to oh. make any adjustments. And so, it's, you know, it's bringing out that conversation of like, 
developer's vision versus making games accessible. And I I just got to say, I'm firmly on the side of like, games should be accessible. If someone wants to play a game, there should be a way for them to do that. And like, your your quote unquote vision sucks if it it can't be played by a fuck ton of people. Like, sorry. I want to be clear. I don't know enough about uh, like Housemark has, the developer has said like, we see your complaints. They haven't said like what they're doing, if anything about it. They are not the ones though sitting here saying like, this is our vision. Mm-hmm. This is this is the audience. The audience comes out here and they're like, some games aren't made for everyone. <sighs> or it's a bad argument. Right. Because um, the vision is the story you're trying to tell and the emotions you're trying to evoke and mm-hmm. the themes you're trying to explore. The vision isn't, you know, can, can someone press pause uh, or can can someone hear this or you know Mm -hmm. will this control trigger x action like that's not the vision that's just the the technical requirements needed to bring your vision to life so if you're not thinking about those technical requirements that's not about your vision that's just you not being inclusive i don't know it's just yeah it's i think it's a i think it's unfortunate I would love to see, I know that there are developers who are paying attention to stuff like this and are moving in this direction. I'd love to see Housemark take this feedback and whether or not they're able to incorporate it into Returnal specifically, or if they learn from this and they bring it into their next game. Like, I feel like that's the best case scenario Um, is is that this is heard and that there's learning from it. But I really think uh, people on the internet who are like, there's also been a lot of shaming of folks who didn't finish the game and still reviewed it. And it's just, there's, it's the, it's brought out that entire group of gamers mm. who are like, you're a gamer if you play hard games and are good at them. Like just that get good mentality. Mm. Um, the game shouldn't make any concessions to you as the player. You've got to be this very specific type of person to be accepted <laughs> as a quote-unquote real gamer. And I just hate it. It just sucks. I wish that that side of the gaming community did not exist because <sighs> it hurts all of us. It hurts all of us. Right. Like, There's nothing wrong with turning a game into sport, but games don't exist to be gauntlets through which you prove whether or not you deserve to play a game. Like, like yeah. that's a different thing. Like. I don't know. I don't yeah. like that. <laughs> I don't like it either. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to mention it. it's been. Yeah, it's yeah. Been, it was one of those things. The whole week of the reviews coming out, there was a lot of conversation happening around it, and uh, I just I don't think we need to be so exclusive mm-hmm. in uh, the way we provide these experiences. Cool. Well, even though I'm not going to play Returnal, I more power to everyone that is, um, and I think if folks want to read more about what other experiences have been with the game for better or for worse. Um, someone you should definitely check out is Steve Saylor. Um, he also goes by the name, the blind gamer and he gives like really cool accessibility reviews. Um, he has his own opinions about Returnal, And so if you want to learn more about what Jamie's talking about, definitely check out um, his Twitter, Steve Saylor um, and his recent podcast appearances. Cause I think he's been talking a lot about the game. Yeah. Yeah. That was, he's one of the main people that I've heard, uh, it, you know, liking the game a lot, but but bringing some, I think, valid critiques of of where it misses the mark in terms of its accessibility. And uh, yeah, cool. So, if you 
we we got on this conversation, if you recall. So I hope you're um, already cozy. <laughs> yeah, we got on this conversation topic uh, because we were talking about our fantasy draft. And if you want to hear that original fantasy draft, um, you can catch that on our Patreon, patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod. Uh, we did do the original draft back in March as our uh, Patreon bonus episode. All right. Enough of the news and the noteworthies and our derailed conversation. <laughs> I should have known we couldn't just get through a chunk of news and yeah. noteworthies like that. That's silly me, silly me. Um, but it is now time, folks. If you have not already, please get cozy. You're now you're, allowed to get cozy. You're now allowed to get cozy. Before, I hope, you know, you were not very uncozy, but yeah. now it is okay to be cozy, uh, to pull up your armchair. Feel free to lie down on your couch. Uh, we're going to talk about our feelings. Spencer, what are you playing? Yeah, well, um, you know, as I've mentioned, I've, I've been kind of in this space of um, playing some quick, light, palate cleanser type games. Um, mm-hmm. There was this tweet I read the other day that I thought was super relevant, especially for, uh, you know, the guests we're going to introduce to you in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but this tweet was from Michaela Davis, um, who works in philanthropy. Um, you can totally find her on Twitter. But she writes, can we please stop using the language return to work in our planning? Mm-hmm. We have never stopped working. We were not on vacation. In fact, we've been working even more. Language is important. Please and thank you. Um, and she follows up by saying, you know, um, this isn't just folks who have had the privilege of, of not having their work interrupted. There are plenty of folks who, even without employers, have been working so much harder uh, than ever before to care for their families, to just survive. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've all been been working constantly, nonstop. Um, and so, you know, I think that this this language around returning to mm-hmm. work, returning to normalcy kind of just ignores the fact that um, like it wasn't like there was ever, this wasn't a break. <laughs> the <Yeah>. pandemic. <laughs> it's a nice um, chill little vacation year for all of us. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I've been, I, I think I've been feeling kind of burnout lately. Um, and I'm trying to like, now that we're all working, like, so I'm, I'm someone who has a remote job. So I'm basically on the computer on zoom all day long. Um, and I do find that, um, just, I don't know if it's just the repetition or the everything being in the same space. Um, but whereas I used to kind of take in less frequent vacations between longer spans of time, I'm finding that my capacity for continued on un- uninterrupted work is like lower. And so it's things like, um, blocking off my Fridays, not have meetings or maybe just taking more frequent three day weekend vacations than like long time vacations, um, could be helpful. Um, but with games, I guess, um, long story short, I'm just, I've just been tired. And so, um, I've been playing some quick ones. Um, there's a game (laughs) that I'm excited to talk about and it's called turn up boy commits tax evasion. Um, (laughs) I love the title so much. Like perfect. I'm saying, yes, I have not played this game at all, but the title (laughs) just like, it warms my heart. Yeah. It's just, (laughs) I feel like it, it perfectly, it's just the juxtaposition is incredible. Um, like I feel like that title just, it tells you everything you need to know about the game. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so it's developed by Snoozy Kazoo and published by Graffiti Games. (laughs) I love that name too. What the heck? Snoozy Kazoo is great. That's like, Snoozy Kazoo, you guys got it. You figured out how to do names. (laughs) Yeah, you've really nailed it. Can you please help us rebrand? Just kidding. Um, (laughs) let me just read their little synopsis. 
Take control of an adorable turnip who happens to be an absolute menace to society. After failing to pay taxes and getting evicted from your home, you must go on an epic quest to pay back your massive debt to Mayor Onion. Using garden (laughs) tools to solve fantastic puzzles, meet eccentric vegetables and fruits, and take on treacherous fights along the journey, uncover what's spoiling this garden community, and rise to tear down the corrupt vegetable government. Oh my god. (laughs) Um, So, I... The reason I wanted to talk about this game is because I definitely picked it up having little expectations. Like I, it was on sale. It was like $4 in the Nintendo Switch e-store. Um, and it's, it looked, it's beautiful. Like the, the pixel art, um, is the colors are very warm and inviting. Um, it kind of has a very, like it, like folks who like, Stardew Valley or Littlewood mm, or Cozy mm-hmm. Grove, like those kind of lush and inviting um, nature-filled. Like <laughs> yeah, we yeah, <laughs> like all those games. <laughs> um, like that kind of, you know, soothing and and nature-filled environment. Like it, it have it has all of that. Um, mm-hmm. It's very. I was I was struck by how thoughtfully designed it was. Like the music uh, is is really engaging and well done. Um, the dialogue is like literally laugh out loud funny. I don't know the last time I've I've laughed so hard playing a game that has no voice acting. Um, like just the it's so witty and uh, it just has these really goofy but uh just really sharp observations of everything like just our current kind of pop culture moment um uh and just everything from streaming culture to um you know anime and manga to um you know gentrification and kind of like millennial attitudes uh and just gen z trends and like it's but it does it all with uh, so much charm that you're never like offended. You never feel made fun of. It's, it's just like we're all kind of in this together. It's a, it's a very self aware game. Um, and I, and I also just love that it's so, um, I think it can be sometimes hard when we talk about things like, uh, like just like earlier when we were reading that beautiful review about the podcast, like it can be hard to balance having a cute, fun time with trying to tackle really big topics like, Hey, maybe landlords shouldn't be a thing. Maybe gentrification and capitalism are bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe, like, <laughs> like maybe we should, like, maybe we should start a revolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, I don't want to say too much about the plot because it's it's. Um, it's so fun to play and it's really quick to pick up. It's not a super long game. Like you could beat it in like eight to 10 hours. Um, but it has all of these elements that work really well together. Like it has little farming elements. It has RPG, like, um, using a bunch of different tools to solve a problem or beat a boss. It has surprisingly robust and entertaining combat. Like the, um, you basically, you're adventuring around your, you know, doing tasks, you're meeting vegetables, you're helping people, um, or vegetables, <laughs> vegetable people. Um, <laughs> and then you're having these, these boss fights, um, to progress to the next level. And, um, and it's, it's designed, like, I would say that there are definitely levels, but it's sort of laid out like an open world. So it doesn't feel like a, like a platform. It's not a platform. Like you're, you're able to run around freely, but, um, 
it's it has surprising depth um and the boss fights like you really have to get creative um in terms of identify like figuring out the tricks to getting your opening and and making those hits like it's incredibly satisfying which i was not expecting from this little turn up <laughs> is it like is it hack and slash like what are how are you fighting it's kind of like a bullet hell situation is how uh, okay. i kind of describe it um mm-hmm. so you have um you have what's called like you have a sword that you grew out of the ground and watered so it's like a <laughs> like a like a wooden sword that you fight uh-huh. with um uh-huh. you also have um a watering can where like there's certain plants where you can water them and they turn into bombs and you can kick mm. them at the enemies um mm-hmm. they also there's this thing it's like a, a potted portal plant and it's literally like the orange and blue like it creates portals like from the game portal very nice <laughs> and then you can use like, you can place them strategically to kind of um like you could either like you can jump in the portal yourself to jump across the screen but you could also like set them up and then like throw a bomb into the portal and then it'll come out the other end and and hit someone or something like you can kind of mm-hmm. use it strategically mm-hmm. um i i don't know why it's not like the games that are funny can't also be thoughtful yeah um, yeah but i was just kind of getting into it for the palate cleansing aspect but i mm-hmm. i'm just delighted by all the care that's been put into it and it's 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 honestly a great time yeah, I, it looks cute as hell, um, and and I think like your point about I, it, f- truly f- laugh out loud funny games. I really don't. We really don't see them very often. You know, you yeah. might you might hit a moment here or there um, that a game might give you a good belly chuckle, but uh, games that are made like to be comedies, to be comical, I I don't think happens very often. Like it's pretty few and far between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and even then, like the ones that have, have happened, like I'm thinking of the South Park games, which were fine, but it's, that's not necessarily my cup of tea. So the fact that, uh, yeah. Or like WarioWare, like mini games. Yep. Yep. Like it's funny because that's, it's made to be funny and to kind of like, I, I guess, or I feel like a lot of funny games, it's like everything about it is in service of the fact that it. It, it's almost it's almost not apologizing for itself but it's almost as if like oh funny games aren't like real hardcore games it's like mm-hmm. its own genre of like you're doing this to almost like take a break from gaming and and mm. it, like, the game itself becomes a joke whereas i yeah. feel like this game is sort of the self-awareness and the fact that you are this adorable little turnip in a vegetable world, but it's, but it's the things it's talking about and speaking to you are very, very real. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of turning the whole, like the whole, what is a game and why do they exist? Like on its head, like it's mm. just, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So um, definitely check out turnip boy commits tax evasion. It's on switch. <laughs> I think it's also on steam. Um, awesome game so what have you been playing uh thank you for asking spencer i have been playing a little game called emily is away three <gasps> except the three looks like uh it's the little heart thing where it's less like than the, three yeah less than three um <clears throat> so it looks like a little heart uh i've talked about emily's away on the podcast before i believe it was a little rex at one point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it's a it, there's three of them now so emily's away one two and three 
these are games developed by uh, just one person. Uh, his name is Kyle Seeley, independent solo game dev. And I actually learned today that he's based in the Boston area. So oh. shout out, Kyle. Um, oh. Thank you Hi, for Kyle. making these games. I really like them. He probably, he probably doesn't listen to the podcast, but maybe he does. Everyone in Boston <laughs> listens to our podcast. Everyone in Boston uh, listens to our podcast. Uh, yeah, for folks who are missing the reference here, Spencer and I are based in the Boston area. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Emily's Away 3 is a really lovely little game uh, that I spent about six hours with this week, uh, which was enough to beat it. It's not a very long game. Uh, I played it on my computer, uh, officially a PC gamer now. So <gasps> hit me Bam. up. Uh, I think that makes me a real gamer, right? Yeah, you're like real now. If you play on PC, you're your a real gamer. Your card will be coming in the mail. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> Finally, vindicated. Yeah. Dash- dashboard confessional. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm selfish. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Careful, we might get a copyright strike. That was so spot on. Um, Anyone remember Spider Man, Tony <laughs> McGuire? <laughs> Spider Man 2 specifically? Yeah. Uh, Had that soundtrack on CD. There we go. (laughs) Throwback. Um, Which, speaking of throwbacks, Emily is Away is a game series that is absolutely designed to be a complete throwback. Uh, This game is a little bit hard to describe Mm -hmm. because the whole format for the game is that when you open it up, it makes it look like you're on a computer uh, from a different time period Mm -hmm. and that you're engaging with... uh, so the first two games, uh, all of the the entire game plays out over AIM chat, AOL Instant Messenger, uh, for folks who grew up in the nineties. When you and say, remember. When you say a different time period, you mean like twenty years ago, not like the nineteenth century. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do mean twenty years ago, but dude, it feels like so. Yeah. It feels like so long ago. I mean. So, okay, I'll just, I'll, uh, I'll out myself a little bit here. I'm 32 years old. I, you know, in the nineties, I was, that was like when I was growing up. Right. So these games really have a deep nostalgia for me that I don't think I can like remove from Mm. my enjoyment of them. So when I talk about these games, like I loved this game. I love all three Emily's away games. I don't know how much of that is predicated on the fact that, Kyle Seeley 100% nails the feeling of what it felt like mm. to interact with these applications when you were that age. So talking specifically about Emily's Away 3, I said the first two games play out over a fake AOL Instant Messenger uh, application. This third game is set at the beginning of Facebook. It's set in 2008. The characters in the game are uh, in their senior year of high school. I graduated from high school in 2007. Mm. So it's, it's, this is like really like, I feel like a deep connection with like the yeah. actual time period that's on display here. And it's, yeah, it's set at that very, those very early days of Facebook in the game, they call it face nook. But basically <laughs> when you boot up the game, your screen looks like your Facebook profile. Mm. And then at, when you play the game, the way the game plays out is that you're getting Facebook messenger chats <laughs> from your friends. And it pops up in the little box just like it would. And like they've nailed the sound design. Like it sounds exactly <laughs> like Facebook sounded. And it they even like even go so far as to like when the game is like loading initially, it like sounds like a, an old computer booting up. Oh wow. Um and, and and the dial-up sounds of the internet <gasps> and connecting to the internet. And then yeah, you get the little the little pop noise 
of the chat coming through and your friends will say something to you and on the screen in the chat box, you'll have one, two, one, two, and three, three options of how to respond. And the text that you can see is kind of just a sense of what the response is going to be. It's not the full response that you're going to have, but it, it's enough mm. that it gives you a sense of the color of that response. You have to press on your keyboard one, two, or three based on what you want to say. And then after you hit that button, you then have to pretend type on your keyboard. And and the text of what you've chosen to respond with appears in the box. So it literally, and like it corresponds with your keystrokes. So it literally like, it puts you completely, you're like, it's the most immersion I think I've ever felt with a video game experience because the way I'm interacting with it feels like I'm I'm really truly participating in this narrative. Yeah, the typing is really interesting as a, a function of really like I'm used to, you know, you select your direction of dialogue or your or your literal dialogue option and then you see that portrayed. Yeah, that's the but end the, of your engagement. Yeah. The act of then actually having to craft it yourself is mm-hmm. really cool. It's it's like the equivalent of like if a game could both let you choose your dialogue and then force you to speak it. But they've actually been able to do that. Like you're both picking what you want to say and then you're it's forcing you to quote unquote speak it. It's forcing you to forcing you to input that into the thing. Now, granted, I'm not typing out exactly what the character's saying, but I'm still having to get the text to appear on the screen in a it, and in a manner that feels like I'm actually doing it. Mm-hmm. So all this is to say is that like, yeah, these these games are hella immersive. And I just I was literally just I spent probably four of the six hours that I played just grinning Aww. from ear to ear at my screen because it's just so immersive. Like I it made me feel like I was 17 again in Facebook, like having these chats uh, with my friends. Back when engaging with social media and the internet felt somewhat innocent. Well, yes. Yeah, so this is exactly my point, right? Like I was trying to figure out like, so I, I love the hell out of the game. I think people should go play it. I think especially if you're kind of in this age group, if you interacted with uh, Facebook when it was young and you have these memories of of being on there and chatting with your friends and, and having these... Uh, these tense interactions where it feels like you're burying your soul. Risky text. Risky, Risky text. Te- right? Like, and it's like, you don't know, like you're trying to feel out, like, do they like me? Do they not like me? Um, am, you know, where do we stand? Like, how do I seem cool, but still available? Like, how do I tell this person I like them without telling them that I like them? They do the fucking notes, the note. Do you remember Facebook notes? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Nostalgia hit. Yeah. So you get to do a Facebook note. <laughs> this one of the, you know, the girl, cause so the way the game plays out is that, and actually I, in this game, like, it, you create your your Facebook profile to start your face nook profile to start mm-hmm. and and all the characters are represented rather than having like detailed pictures of each of the characters it's it's kind of just a pixelated um silhouette silhouette, silhouette of the character and that's a and each character is represented by a different color mm-hmm. so you pick your own silhouette and you can there's no gender attached to the silhouettes they just have like it was like six or seven different ones that kind of look like different haircuts and you pick the one that you want um so i thought that was interesting there was kind of there was no sort of choice in that in the previous games um it is i do think it's a limited narrative i think you know people who want to critique this game for it being a small narrative limited yeah Mm -hmm. you're probably right like you're going into this game it's essentially a teen drama Mm -hmm. where your character uh, can choose to uh, romance one of two uh, girls, two mm-hmm. young women 
in the game. There's Evelyn and there's Emily. And uh, they're both a little bit stereotyped. It's a little bit cliche. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like they're stereotypes in the way that they are people that I knew. Right, right. Like, Evelyn is the one who, like, drinks a little too much, parties a little too hard. She likes <laughs> punk music. She smokes. <laughs> and, like, I knew people like that. Like, yes, is it, a, is it a high school cliche? Absolutely. But, like, I knew that person. Right. And, like, Emily's a bit more straight-laced. She's into indie rock. <laughs> she does her <laughs> homework on time. Oh. <laughs> just, you know, I don't know. These are people that I knew. So you kind of – you. You, and the because the dialogue is so well written, it feels so real. It feels so authentic to like how we actually communicated at that age and on those platforms. It yeah. just it's it just sucks you in. It's you know my my partner came back here and knocked on the knocked on the door to the the studio the first night I was in here playing it, and he was like, uh, "It's time to go to bed." And I was like, <laughs> "I'm trying to ask my girlfriend to prom. Yeah. <laughs> I can't go to bed right now. I've got to find out if she's going to go to prom with me." Yeah. <laughs> so it's high it, stakes. It is. It's high stakes. But yeah, I think kind of the point you were making earlier about like when social media felt more innocent refreshing I, I don't know there's something about this that it really did remind me of what social media and, and chat p- platforms how they used to feel like mm-hmm. it used to feel like a place that you could try to find connection with someone in a way that you couldn't do in person because mm-hmm. of all of you know as someone who has so much anxiety and mm-hmm. like always has and like is so introverted like connecting with people IRL has always felt so challenging. Like I never know how to be or how to hold myself or how to stand or, mm-hmm. and then I think that's all just exacerbated at the, that age when mm-hmm. you're preteen teenager, you just feel so awkward and uncomfortable in your own skin. And something about like being able to do that on the other side of a computer screen, there was a level of intimacy I remember yeah. achieving with my friendships that was not possible in person. Like yeah. things we never would have said to each other if we were sitting face to face could be said through the chat box because it felt like some, it both allowed you to be vulnerable and felt safer at the same yeah. time. Um, and that that's, that was really, it was really special moment. It's like such an, I don't, I don't know if kids today get that in the same way because of what social media has become. Mm-hmm. And also I feel like, especially now after a year of like living through this pandemic and living my entire life through screens and text boxes and only interacting people in this with people in this way, like I feel so burnt out on it. I hate it so much. And and something about playing this game just like reminded me that it that it used to feel special. That there that there used to be like a promise in uh in or a, a possibility of connection in that that I don't feel when I engage with social media anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it it ended up being like a really special and refreshing little experience to have this week. It's ten dollars on Steam. I think people should check this game out. You can run it on a toaster. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I think people should check it out, especially if you're from that age group. It, it just, um, yeah, that's a really nice little way to spend a few hours this week and remember <laughs> how, how these platforms used to feel a lot less draining and a lot more exciting. That sounds so incredible. And what you said about the possibilities really resonated. I think, um, I don't know, something about social media today, it feels very performative. Like you feel very pressured into presenting a certain curated 
picture into your life. Like it's very mm-hmm. much about others looking in and mm-hmm. seeing something that you have very intentionally crafted. Whereas I feel like back then, like you said, it was, it was just about connection, just about sending out a line of text and, and, and getting something back, mm-hmm. um, something that you could never say in the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think too, we were so, we could be versions of ourselves that we, we, we couldn't really be, um, IRL, even mm-hmm. down to, like, I, th- I think back then, like there was such an emphasis on profile pictures that were, you know, drawings or, or photos mm-hmm. of non-humans or, uh, like names, like screen names that you could craft. And, um, like it was just, there was a playfulness there. Um, mm-hmm. and it feels like we take social media a lot more seriously now in a lot of ways. Um, well, I mean, it's how much like employers look at your social right. media now, right? <laughs> like it, you're, yeah, I think you're, you're kind of, you're, you're definitely hitting on it. It's like there at that time it was much more a place to experiment and explore. Mm. And I think now your social media has to be the most, uh, polished polished and like consumable view of yourself Mm. because it's like an advertisement for who you are in real life. Mm. And if those things don't now, obviously, Speaking broadly, lots of people get on social media and are anonymous, but then they seem to just use that to be fucking assholes. So (laughs) it's like, I don't know, there was something really special about folks. It wasn't, you weren't being anonymous. You were just like, Mm -hmm. you're just playing with your identity in a way that felt really free. And like, Mm Facebook's trash, man. The whole time they were, of course, they were siphoning all that information and yeah. being awful. And like, I mean, you know, it was an app invented so that dudes could like flip through all the women on Harvard's yep. campus. Yeah, so, like this is not a to romanticize its origins. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is not me like defending Facebook or, yeah. or like even it's it's really just me talking about like what what was special what was special about Emily's away and what I remembered was special yeah. about that time when the internet felt so much more full of possibilities mm-hmm. than than I think it it does today and I, I don't know the possibilities are still out there I think if you look for them I'm, I think maybe I'm being a little cynical but I I too have just felt so exhausted by social media lately there's a lot more risk today to mm -hmm. the sort of becoming uh Mm -hmm. that you would sort of be going through as you're growing up uh like like we did when in those sort of chat rooms and spaces like if people saw the embarrassing things you said or the you know the shitty the ways we could we could still be shitty to each other like like Mm -hmm. there's just there's no room for error in today's social media Uh, and i'm not saying that people there aren't people out there who deserve to be called out, held accountable, um, canceled, et cetera. That's Mm -hmm. not at all what I'm saying, but there's still like, in order to learn, you have to fail and, and to grow, you have to be uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people try to be, they spend so much time curating and thinking through and, and planning how they're going to be coming across that, that there's just very little, space to fail or to accept others who fail. Yeah. Yep. I I agree with that a hundred percent. It modern social media feels like it, there's a there's an invisible scorecard somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um and someone's tallying the points. Mm-hmm. Uh 
Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just, his face just like popped into my head and all I can do is like laugh or puke. Um, Well, (laughs) I think we'll go ahead and transition over to our guest for today. Uh, But yeah, you should, you should all go check out Emily's Away. Um, throw Kyle Seely some ten dollars. Feel something, yeah. Go feel something, man. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this week we're chatting with Dr. Devin Price, <laughs> a social psychologist and author of the book "Laziness Does Not Exist," which is a fascinating and thorough examination of what Devin calls the laziness lie, which falsely tells us we are not working or learning hard enough. Laziness does not exist is filled with practical and accessible advice for overcoming society's pressure to do more. Uh, We spoke with Devin in depth about the laziness lie, how the focus on productivity in our culture functions as a tool of white supremacy, and how playing video games just might be a bigger help than you may think. Oh my God, this interview literally goes everywhere. It goes all the places. It does. Uh, Yeah, it was one of those conversations that was just, it was electric from start to finish. uh, And we're so excited to be sharing this with you. And I did it in the closet. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Spencer had to start the interview by being like, while I'm in the closet and my cat is scratching down the door, scratching at the door, Um, you know, podcaster woes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, we love talking to Dr. Devin Price. I hope that you will enjoy listening to the conversation we had with them. So without further ado, here is our interview with them. Hello to our wonderful guest, and thank you so much for joining us in the virtual pixel therapy studio. To start, um, would you mind letting us know your name and your pronouns? Yeah, um, my name is Devin Price, and uh, my pronouns are they, them. Thank you so much, Devin, for being here. Um, Devin, how do you spend your time? Um... I I do love that that's the question instead of like what my what my job is. But right now, I've mostly been um, I'm a psychologist, so I've, and I'm autistic. So right now, I've been working on a book about autism. Lately, it's been the thing taking up a lot of my time. Um, I just finished my first draft of that, so I've been walking around outside a lot and putting off prepping for the psychology classes I'm teaching over the summer. So I'm in this this balance of writing, psychology, trying to be a hedonist as soon as it's possible mm. to socialize <laughs> again. Yeah. Those are the things that are that are in my mind and in my life right now. Oh my God, when you say that, uh, just put it like counting down the days so we can be hedonists again. Like um, it just makes me think about, I don't know if this resonates with you, but I feel like I've been talking with a bunch of trans people about how like in quarantine and this, this space where we've been so separate from any sort of queer community that was physical, like so much of queer community before the quarantine, like I, everything would be like a parade or a party or a dungeon party or like just everything was, there was a lot of places where it was, our physical presence was very important to the, to the sharing of space. And so, um, also just the fact that we're no longer seen in the same way that we used to be. Like I found that a lot of my rules around like how I present as trans, I've relaxed a lot of them. And and I, I may have even gone through some period of not being sure what my identity was when I was no longer defining it in relation to how acceptable I was to cis people. Um, Mm. And so that's just been a thing. I don't know. (laughs) I just said a lot of things. Does that resonate at all? 
there's yeah there's so many layers to like how quarantine affects you as a it's like so, so the first point that you're speaking to like it, right now I feel like we're all online and so we have the worst parts of the queer community the worst elements of like people being very anxious and traumatized and re-traumatizing yeah. each other without yeah. any of the good joyous mm. parts of like getting to like you know go to a bathhouse or something mm-hmm. um, so <laughs> it's and just like having celebratory moments um, and getting mm. to show off your outfits <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I really miss all of those things being a part of people's lives and also it is such a trip like I, I am one of the few people who I was getting once I started having to wear a mask outside like I would get gendered correctly more often which I've heard the mm. opposite particularly from a lot of transmasculine people that they start getting she heard more often um, but I had the opposite experience um, so in some ways it's been cool and um you know, I haven't had to put on my like respectable reading as the gender I want to be read as at work mm-hmm. drag. Mm. That's kind of not the real, you know, it's, it's the easy to parse version of who I am. Um, so being free of that is huge. It's just yeah. been a real trip. It's just like, we're in our heads so much and like having these big moments of introspection, which has been great. And it's also been hell. A lot. <laughs> at the same yeah. time. It's funny, like with the mask thing, it just made me think, uh, like my partner and I are both, I guess, technically trans guys. I don't even, I don't even know what I am anymore. I'm on, I, I take testosterone. I'm, I'm genderqueer. Let's leave it at that. But it's just funny because before the pandemic, before masking, I feel like when he and I were out and about and seen together, like I think he, he presents very masculine, like even the way he carries himself, like I've always been kind of, like some people are just born and they are like, I don't know, I don't want to say this in a way that would invalidate anyone's gender identity, but everything about him just exudes boyishness, uh, like down to the way he carries himself and his voice. And even before he was ever on T, people would think that he was a cis man just by mistake. Um, mm. Not that there's any way to look cis necessarily, but that's just a thing that happened. Um, but, and in the past, people would read us as a gay couple, gay, gay, masculine couple. Um, because I have facial hair and I don't know when I was binding and stuff that was a thing but now that we're in mass anytime anyone glances at us they just assume that I'm a woman and and he's a guy and it's really made me think like I don't know like what is it about me like all these gendered habits are so deeply ingrained in our society and so let we could talk for an hour about gender but let me just take a quick conversational left turn uh, the reason we brought you're here with us today Devin is as you mentioned you're writing um so prolific uh you're working on a new book but you actually wrote another book that's really freaking awesome it's called laziness does not exist um and in this book you Devin really like debunks and illuminates how this fear of being perceived as lazy um and our avoidance of uh of laziness is so destructive to our health to our well-being and it even affects the way we see other people and kind of poisons that too um I feel like I've seen this book all over the place lately. Um, people are really, really resonating with it and being like, Oh my God, this is like all the things that I never, uh, had the words for. Um, thank you for writing this book. Uh, just because the book is about how pervasive this laziness lies in our society. Like, how does that feel hearing all of this praise and how amazing it's been for people to read the book? Yeah. So there's this phrase that I encountered on a, um, a blog that was for, uh, adults who were estranged from their families that kind of went viral a few years ago. And that author described themselves as sad, proud 
of like, <laughs> oh, I'm connecting with all of these people. And so many people mm. get this pain of having to go no contact with your family. And mm. it's, I'm really proud of that, but I'm really sad that it's even needed. So it definitely feels very sad, proud to realize, yeah. okay, yeah, this problem is really huge. Everybody feels like they're lazy or not doing enough. Everybody is mm. pointing that same laser of judgment at everybody else. Um, and people need to hear this. And it's, it's kind of harrowing to me how often people need to hear it because even the same people will react, will respond to me saying laziness doesn't exist in whatever way multiple mm. times because you have to hear it so many times because it's mm. so ingrained in us. So mm -hmm. that's like, oh God, is the work ever going to end? Kind of a mm. feeling sometimes. Yeah. And, and Devin, what is the problem? What is the laziness lie? Yeah. So the laziness lie is my kind of handy uh, term for a bunch of implicit beliefs that are really deeply embedded in our culture and really deeply embedded in our history about uh, the value of, of, uh, productivity and that being how people's worth is defined. Um, so I, I break it down as having kind of three core tenets um, mm -hmm. that your worth is defined by your productivity, that you can't trust any needs or limitations that you feel inside of yourself mm -hmm. um, because those are really just barriers to your productivity. And then the third tenet of the laziness lie is that there's always more that you could be doing. So even if you are just really uh, working yourself to the bone in one area of life, you can feel bad mm -hmm. about the fact you're not doing enough activism or you're not showing up for your friends emotionally enough or your house is a mess. Like there's just an unending litany of things to feel inadequate about. And we can't ever really win if that's how mm. we define our lives. Mm. And when we talk about laziness, like what are some ways that we can sort of reframe our understanding of it? Yeah. So the first thing I think is just learning to kind of observe and describe how you feel and how you spend your time with a sp spirit of observation. And this is data. This is not something I'm going to judge as this is wrong that I'm spending my time this way or that I need this many hours of sleep or video gaming or whatever it is. Just mm -hmm. noticing your habits and going, okay, this is how I actually live my life. I might set out to do, you know, 20 things on my to-do list every day and I never hit that number. Instead of beating myself mm -hmm. up for it, why can't I look at, okay, I only tackle about five things on the to-do list per day. Maybe that's what my to-do list should look like four or five mm -hmm. things. Um, and that's kind of a simplified uh, version of it, but really just looking at when do I feel tired? When do I feel cranky? What times of day is it hard for me to pay attention? And instead of seeing that as a problem to solve by drinking more coffee or beating yourself up over it, just going, mm -hmm. okay, I need a break. I'm tired. I'm not focusing. Let's go do something else. Um, yeah. yeah. That's so real. Like what you were speaking to earlier of this fact that no matter what, we can never win. Because it's like, if you take the time to take care of yourself, then you're neglecting your friends or you're not working as hard as you could. If you spend too much time on work, then you're not taking any time for yourself. Or again, your friendships suffer. Um, I think it's hard to focus on the, like just because of quarantine and stuff, we've been so isolated. So maybe the, the personal time can also start to feel like work because at least for me, like with everything being on Zoom, Zoom just feels like a hell portal where that sucks all my energy. And so I don't want to be with my friends on Zoom. I want to be off of the computer and I can't do that. So um, 
I think that's just a, just really relatable. This when you step back and look at it, like we keep telling ourselves, just try this and it'll it'll fix things. You'll have the balance when really the system's designed to never let you get that balance. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Self-care is a total like sham. Like, like, yes, it's true that we do need to do things to take care of ourselves and, um, you know, develop skills, even if sometimes it's like sneakily finding ways to get the time that you need, like, you know, to add, or finding the tools to advocate for yourself. But like, it's not going to fix the structural problem that we're all working more and more for less and less, mm-hmm. historically mm-hmm. speaking. And, um, and that's also a big tension in my work. Like, how do I give people practical advice while also saying, hey, if you find that you there's nothing that you can do, that you're doing your best to try and navigate this stuff, like, don't, you're not a failure for still being exhausted because it's set up that way. Um, something I really liked is that there's also multiple Mad Men references in the book. <laughs> um, specifically, uh, you quote how Matt Weiner, who's the creator of Mad Men, um, he once said that the show was about, quote unquote, becoming white. Um, and if, and I thought maybe, Devin, would you mind taking a minute to kind of explain that phrase? Like, what does it mean to become white? Yeah. So, so whiteness, of course, is a social construct. It's this kind of big idea of like the neutral default state of being uh, that absorbs more and more groups of people over time because of their proximity to privilege, right? So like the mm-hmm. most famous example of that is that Italian people weren't always considered white. Um, they certainly didn't have the same level of oppression as lots of other like darker skinned people in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was kind of this idea of like you deviate uh, from the norm of the people who colonized this country in enough ways, both visibly and culturally, that we see you as other and lesser to some extent. But so mm-hmm. like whiteness is just kind of this idea of um, kind of the monolithic, uh, you know, occupying force. And uh, and anyone who kind of deviates from this image of not only like conforming to a certain kind of European culture that's pretty narrow, but also mm-hmm. being um, having a level of status where you're not presenting like an inconvenience to anyone else or kind of violating Mm. the culture's rules. Those kinds of things are like seen as kind of like deviating from whiteness. So, um, so in Mad Men, uh, Don Draper obviously like is a white man, but he's a, uh, he's from a hillbilly family. And uh, for a really long time in American culture and history, we've had this image of quote unquote white trash or quote unquote hillbillies as Mm. people who are white but because they're poor and because they are in multi-generational homes and their cultural practices are a little bit different, that they are like a betrayal of whiteness. They're like an embarrassment mm-hmm. to whiteness, if that makes any sense. Um, and in Mad Men, Don Draper kind of learns to hide where he's from. He has to change his name. These are all, you know, decades old spoilers yeah. uh, <laughs> and take on a new identity and create and, and hide all, also all of the kind of like abuse and trauma that came from his life growing up in poverty as well to make himself into this like sanitized man in the gray suit, very poised, mm-hmm. no emotions, no needs. You know, he becomes less and less of a human being. And that's really what it is to become white. Um, so even though it is a little tricky, like I don't ever want to like give the implication that like, uh, you know, c- coming from like a hillbilly family that is, you know, 
mostly white passing for several generations at this point. Like, mm. yes, people in that situation are white and they do have white privilege. But the whole fact that we have this concept of whiteness is used to like destroy cultures and, mm-hmm. and sanitize and silence. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, thank you. And there was a passage uh, around this chapter of the book where you write, um, the laziness lie encourages people to conform for the sake of succeeding at work. We're rewarded when we choose to become white in our presentation, professionalism, and work habits. From a young age, we're taught to admire women writers who had to take male pen names in order to be published and to celebrate the black inventors and scholars who had to work twice as hard as their white peers for a fraction of the money and acclaim. The People who resist the world's bigotry are branded as lazy complainers who don't have what it takes to succeed. The more a person can buff out all their rough edges, becoming as smooth and featureless and normal seeming as possible, the more they and everyone around them can ignore systemic problems and focus on being productive, which backs again to this whole laziness myth. Um, this passage, it, and I think you speak on it specifically later in the chapter, um, just for folks who, <laughs> you should read this book, just read this book. But um, it just, it really resonated with me as a trans person who has often been told that my presence in a corporate environment is distracting, which is something that you speak on as well. Um, like for me, I think as a younger person and as someone pre- before coming out and transitioning, which I had to do publicly because of being in an office, um, I really thrived. I really thought that I thrived in corporate environments. I saw work as a place that had very clearly defined rules. And if I followed those rules, I could get ahead. It didn't matter that I was mixed race. It didn't matter that I was queer. It didn't matter what my background was. I thought that if I came in and followed the rules, I would be okay. After I came out, I realized that those rules weren't there to equalize the playing field. They were there to make sure that only certain types of people got ahead. I did nothing else than just existing in my body, but my body became more and more threatening to people, the less and less it looked like what people expected to see from someone of a certain gender. And it just completely shattered everything that I had believed about um, the work environment. Like every year would pass and I would see more and more of my trans colleagues having to take leaves of absence, having to leave the corporate world to take a job that was not as stressful, having to take medical, like who knows when they're coming back to work. And, And every time that happened, I thought, oh, you know, that won't happen to me because I was feeding into this laziness lie that it was, must've been something, you know, that I don't know what it was, but then it got to the point where it was happening to me. I could not keep going. And I just think that, um, people don't necessarily think about how all of these, uh, aggressions and oppressive actions and, and even the ways that to ourselves and each other, that we tear each other down or separate ourselves from each other. Um, because of these tenets of, of laziness that we've internalized so deeply, um, like it really fucks you up. So, yeah. And it makes you so easy to exploit, right? Like the Mm -hmm. whole promise that like, if you just work hard enough, that will make up for how bigoted the world is against you, that it's possible to do everything right. It makes you so compliant and exhausted and apologetic and it just worsens Mm. all Mm -hmm. of the problems and injustices ultimately. hundred percent. Um, so Devin, what does it look like when we stop pressuring ourselves so much to be this quote unquote normal seeming? Like who can we be when we stop measuring everything we do in comparison to the laziness lie? Um, I was curious, like in your own experience, how you've seen that kind of unlearning process manifest in positive ways. Yeah. So for me, it's a lot of saying no 
Um, it's a lot of saying like, what's your budget for this? It's a lot of like mm. being at a meeting and being like, why are we here? <laughs> Do we, does this need to be a meeting? Do we need to be doing this? Is this a realistic goal? Um, and I know that like, because I'm a professor, I'm able to like be really candid about a lot of these things. And I have flexibility over my job and my commitments, um, professionally and otherwise in a way that most people don't, um, mm. So I always do want to highlight that. Um, I think in certain professions and fields, we do get it really drilled into us that we're not allowed to say no or to ask questions when actually, if we do take that step, it frees up everyone around us to do the same. So mm -hmm. I do kind of encourage people to like question like, can you say no? Can you question things? Can you say, well, I spent this many hours on this thing that I'm not getting credit for in any way. It's not part of how my job is evaluated. So can we like restructure things here? Mm -hmm. um, because I think it does get really drilled into us to be passive, compliant, agreeable, and to not be difficult. Um, and when we are more quote unquote difficult, it helps everyone around us by reestablishing like a new culture uh, where it's okay mm -hmm. to do that. But at the same time, again, incredibly privileged thing to have that, you know, to not have firing mm. hanging over my head for saying mm. things like that. So I think, yeah. you know, some of the other forms it takes for me outside of the workplace are still similar things. Um, you know, being okay disappointing a family member or a friend, um, turning off all of my notifications on everything and just like cultivating relationships where you know, like I might send you 20 texts in a row when I'm really excited about something and you might do the same to me. And then sometimes we might not talk for a week or two and that's fine. You know, like really mm. developing those relationships where you can say, no, I don't feel like it. I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable. I can't commit to this, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. um, and getting tolerant of the like distress that comes from saying no, when you're so used to compulsively being a people pleaser and saying yes all the time. Does it get any easier to say no? <laughs> it does and it doesn't. Like there's some things where I am very, very confident in it now professionally mm -hmm. because I know I can get away with it. And with certain friends who have proven time and time again, they're not going to be assholes to me if I say no to something. Mm -hmm. But there are still things where I have to like let my tears be the thing that speaks for me because I'm not really willing to hear my own no, that's like screaming inside of me sometimes for just like really silly things. Like I was watching this show with my partner that like there was a character in it that was like basically a drag king, but it kind of mm -hmm. hit in a very transphobic way to me. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt stupid for being offended. And so mm -hmm. I, and so he could tell I was upset and I was like, and he's like, do you want me to stop this show? And I was like, no, it's fine. You know, like wanting to be yeah. like cool and not difficult. But then I started crying and that was such a good thing, you know, like our emotions yeah. protect us. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. Sometimes, sometimes the way that we stand up for ourselves is really messy mm. and it looks like crying in the middle of a show you don't want to watch because you're embarrassed to yeah. say you don't like the show. <laughs> but I think that's like equally, like that's really important to do too. Yeah. Your body's like, I've got you. I'm validating mm -hmm. you. Yeah. 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 My body was like, okay, you're, if you're not going to protect us, I'm going to protect yeah. us. Bitch. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
bringing it back to gaming, um, I just thought it was, I really wanted to bring you on the show because I feel like by and large to people who don't understand them, video games are seen as a huge red flag of laziness and a total waste of time. Um, in your book, you write like literally that wasting time is a basic human need. Um, and it's one of the keys to start building a healthy, happy life. I was wondering if you could take a minute to say more about what it means to waste time and why that's important. Yeah. So we treat ourselves like we're like objects. We like self-objectify in these horrible ways where we see our minds and our bodies as just a means to an end. How am I going to earn money, learn a new skill that's going to be valuable to an employer or somebody else? Um, how can I make my needs smaller and smaller and my own desires smaller and smaller so that I can like maximize my productive capacity? And it's all for other people. It's not for us. And, um, and our brains and bodies really can tell the difference between something that we're doing because we feel like we have to, or that we're doing out of a sense of, you know, economic coercion or just fear about the future versus when we're just saying, okay, I'm doing this because it's playful. It's joyful to me. It has no goal. Um, mm -hmm. and, and throwing time and attention into things that are quote unquote waste of time is really, really restorative and, even more important than that, because this isn't all about like restoring your capacity to go back and be productive again. It's just part of what makes life pleasurable. You know, like when we look back on our lives and think about the things that matter to us, sometimes achievements will figure in there. But a lot of times it'll be like, oh, this play that I worked on with friends that nobody came to and didn't sell any tickets. Like, oh, this D&D &D game where we came up with these hilarious jokes. And you know what? We didn't record it. It wasn't a podcast. It wasn't it wasn't something for anybody else um, mm. or, you know, hours that we, that we spent on a video game or, you know, on some forum online, mm -hmm. those things like make up like the real like tapestry of our lives. And they really reflect us like listening to what actually feels good versus this is going to earn me approval, money, secure my status in society because I'm really vulnerable. Um, and mm -hmm. we really discount that stuff um, to the point of even being embarrassed sometimes to talk about the things we put a lot of time into that aren't like impressive or monetizable. Yes. Yes. Oh God. What you just, that last part about being ashamed or embarrassed to share something that doesn't, you can't derive value from. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that just talking of, out, speaking of hours spent playing games, um, I in the book you mentioned this phenomenon called vacation guilt. Um, it's kind of like an American thing where there was this 2018 Glassdoor survey that found that uh, Americans only used half of their vacation days. And already Americans have like half of the allotted vacation days of like Europeans. Um, like I work at a company that has a lot of Irish employees and a lot of American employees and uh, folks over there get at least like three to four weeks of vacation. And um, whereas folks in the U.S. are are want to just not do it at all. Like I work at a company that has unlimited vacation days. So what you find is that when they're not given a minute, I feel like people should be given minimum vacation. I think, Jamie, you and I have talked about this before, but people should mm -hmm. be given vacation minimums because if you just tell them, do whatever you want, they're going to feel so guilty that they're not going to take any. Uh, and, and, that, and that's fucked up. <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. 
Uh, to the point, uh, I feel like I have gaming guilt um, because games always keep track of how many hours that you play. Um, and it can be tough for me to not look at that number uh, when it feels like a blink of an eye, 50 hours have gone by and not feel guilty in some way. Um, but when I was reading your book, I was thinking like, why can't I reframe that? Why not look at it as 50 peaceful hours, 50 hours I spent free of stress and obligations, 50 hours that were packed full of achievable goals that I could progress towards and grow from, uh, just 50 hours that were a gift to myself. And, and isn't also, you know, a testament to the people who worked for years, in some cases, to make these games that they commanded 50 hours of my time. Like, I just think that it's a simple reframing, but it, it just really speaks to how we you know, just assign negative values of these things that aren't immediately tied to capitalism. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that that time went by, like in a breeze for you, like that tells you that you were having a lot of fun and you were immersed and you were mm. away from your like everyday worries for like once in a goddamn while, which we all need so desperately, especially now, but always. Um, mm -hmm. And and it's so funny that like if someone gets lost in a book and they read a book in a single setting, we would we never mm. moralize that like basically ever, unless it's like if somebody wants to go with a really like sexist or ageist, like, Oh, you're reading YA fiction, you're frivolous or whatever. Like sure. that sometimes happens. Mm. But, but usually if someone reads, because we've decided for some reason that reading is like hard and rigorous and therefore yeah. acceptable, <laughs> right. you can get lost in a book. But if you get lost in a video game, it, people immediately pull up these stereotypes of, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things tied up in it, right? Like the like fat, lazy gamer mm -hmm. who doesn't have a mm -hmm. job. Like think of all the prejudices that are all nested within each other there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and also it being immature. That's another kind of mm. bigotry that gets wrapped up in there. That there's certain ways to spend your time that are that make you an adult, which basically right. means make you a person. Builds versus, character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Versus if it's like being a child, that's you know that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it sucks. And I still have that too. I have that about like watching anime and, and, mm. manga and stuff like that also. Yeah. Oh my God. Mood. Um, and that it also makes me think too, uh, in your book, you write about burnout and to burnout is basically what happens when we work too hard and too long without rest. Um, it can result in emotional apathy, crankiness, loss of purpose and identity. Um, you, we're writing about uh, the work of social psychologist, uh, and let me know if I'm pronouncing her name right, Christina Maslach. Mm -hmm. um, so Christina Maslach found that curing burnout isn't just about working less. Um, burnout is actually far less common when you feel rewarded and recognized and when work isn't just an endless slog. Um, with that in mind, I guess I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how video games may actually have the capacity to be really helpful in treating burnout. Yeah. So, so one thing we can look at here is why so many people find games so motivating and enjoyable. And that is because pretty much just like you said, it's the inverse of a burnout creating structure. Like workplaces mm. that cause burnout are really emotionally taxing. You don't get appreciated for the work that you're doing. The work never seems to end or progress in any way. You just feel really powerless and also like you're just constantly grinding, which there are some video games like that. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> and, and we can actually talk about how games have gotten sometimes increasingly that way, certain games, mm. um, and, uh, and being all about achievement hunting, which for me ruins the game experience. But like, 
people like having a structure. People like having the ability to progress and say, I've grown. I can do this kind of attack. And so now I can handle this kind of boss. I have this tool. So now I can open this part of the dungeon. That is really, really rewarding for people, especially in a world where your like email inbox just never empties and you never mm. get any acknowledgement of you worked really hard on this report and it's great. Um, you, and you don't get any pay raise related to it either. Um, mm. so, so video games really give a lot of people that, that hit of, of dopamine. It's really helpful, especially for people with ADHD who really like having both reward and structure and stimulation in a way that like our world just has a dearth of for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it also lets you feel powerful and like you have choice, um, and, and control over things. And that's also really important because we are so disempowered in so much of our lives. Mm. Oh my God. It's so true. And back to what you were saying a minute ago, like about achievement hunting, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on like how you've seen games sort of maybe even leaning too far into that. Yeah. So I am someone who, um, if a game feels like checking my email, I find it really aversive. So a lot of things you have to like constantly like be crafting and stuff like that. I know a lot of people find it incredibly rewarding to do that stuff, but, um, there's this, uh, YouTuber, uh, Jim Stephanie Sterling. I don't know if you know them, um, Mm -hmm. but they talk a lot about how like the proliferation of like microtransactions and loot boxes and DLC, not in every game, but in a lot of games, those are designed to keep people pumping money and time into the same game over and over again, even if it is like pretty joyless, just, oh, I need to get this achievement so that I can get this skin because the game doesn't let me just buy the skin that I want or buy the, Mm -hmm. you know, upgrade that I want. Um, And game developers, especially the big ones, the AAA developers have really started learning a lot from casinos and, um, just gambling psychology, basically, to learn how to mm. kind of manipulate people into pumping more time into something. Get an and, yes, yes. Oh, even though I do really love, like, that game's beautiful yeah. and, like, fun, but, like, yeah, the, the grinding and, and, and yeah, uh, in gotcha stuff is yeah. so frustrating. So some of those things are, like, literally designed to be frustrating, just in right mm. the right level where someone thinks, oh, I almost got the thing I wanted. I'm going to mm-hmm. keep going even though I'm not having fun versus games that have more of a spirit of play and open-endedness. Again, that's not for everyone. Sometimes people do want, here's what you, here's a goal for you to meet. And that can be really rewarding. But um, yeah, unfortunately, some of the big games from the big studios have gotten all about just draining you of money and pissing Mm. you off. It's fascinating. Like Like, I guess I turn to games to get like we talked about that little dopamine hit of good job you did it um <laughs> and i always am i'm always of the belief that games are fair uh, at least i have this impression that games on that games i buy for my console or whatever that they're inherently fair like they would never betray me um and so i think it gets uh scary to like i found uh, i've been watching my partner play Red Dead Online, which is like a open world Wild West situation. And um it's like you can you can work and toil and eventually get enough money to buy the thing. Or you can just spend a couple real life US dollars to get the thing and 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 move on to the next achievement. And I don't know, it's I think too because 
it's so immersive. You can easily find yourself, a bunch of microtransactions can add up into something that you never even anticipated. Um, but it, but the root of it is just searching for that little piece of, of good feeling that we are just completely deprived of in, in any world that we're experiencing in reality. So it's just, uh, just all the way down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think I, I'm glad you brought up the point of fairness, like this idea or like that there's, you know, there's a consequence for an action in like a positive way in mm-hmm. games most of the time that like we were taught as kids that that's how the world works, that we live in some meritocracy where if you just be confident, work hard, be mm-hmm. yourself, things will pay off. And of course, that never ha- happens for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that realm and just having the ability to like alter your appearance go do something different if you're not enjoying mm. one side quest like the the freedom and and what a game gives back to you relative to what you put into it is so i, I don't know healing might be a little bit too much sometimes mm. but like but like it is very satisfying and it's yeah. if only the world worked like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so true On this show, we typically like to ask folks to talk about a specific game um, that had an impact on their life. Devin, you mentioned a game called Eco um, that was really important to you. And for folks who may not be familiar, um, Eco is a PS2 game that came out in 2001. And it's basically a spiritual prequel to Shadow of the Colossus, which is a very uh, like cult classic. It's one of Jamie's favorite games. So y'all have heard about it plenty of times. Um, but the protagonist in Eco is a young boy, um, who was born with horns, um, which his village considers a bad omen. Warriors lock him away in this creepy abandoned fortress where he meets Yorda, the daughter of the castle's queen. Um, the two of them pair up, uh, to escape, uh, with Eco keeping Yorda safe from the shadowy creatures that are attempting to draw her into the queen's clutches. And throughout the game, um, it's like a like you control Eco as he explores the castle, solves puzzles, lots of spatial stuff and platforming. Um, and Devin, you mentioned that you played Eco as a teenager. I'm wondering, like, what immediately pops into mind when you think of the game? Um, what makes it hold on so strongly in your memory? Yeah, so Eco is one of those games that. Um, I will forever be like the, I don't know, the like stoner uncle who's trying to tell you to listen to some album from before <laughs> yeah. you were born, you know, like, yeah, this is where it all started. Yeah. Man. Like, yes. <laughs> like, like, like a lot of people know Shadow of the Colossus is this beautiful, artsy, very moving game, but like Eco is the blueprint, baby. Like mm-hmm. it's, it was the first game that made me really realize video games could be art and not even in this intellectual way. It's just that it was like moving me as a good work of art does yeah. and transporting me. Um, you know, there's no user interface. There's almost no cutscenes or dialogue. There's no boxes that pop up when interacting with anything. There's no tutorial. You are just dropped into a world and you have a stick and you are trying to get out of this temple and you have someone that you hold hands with. And when you run with her, you can feel the little vibrations as you're holding hands. So it's this incredibly like tactile, dreamlike, beautiful world um, where you are just like, you've been like cursed and you're just trying to, and you've been like told your whole life that you're mm. like supposed to be a human sacrifice. And like, um, I think 
there's a little bit of a transmasculine air of like, oh, you're born with these appendages you don't want. Yeah. <laughs> like he's born with these horns. Those horns, yeah. That, that is very resonant. And by the end of the game, uh, they get they get knocked off and he he's freed <gasps> of that. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and it's very beautiful and moving. Yeah. Uh, so like he basically, yeah, he gets uh, top surgery. Um, <laughs> and, and you're escaping this prison alongside this person who is um, – it, it, there's a lot of themes of like imp, kind of implied themes of like the cycle of abuse in families where you, there's this girl that you're helping also rescue from this prison. And she is the daughter of this evil queen. And she finds out that she's supposed to be the vessel for this mm. queen who's going to like inhabit her body um, and take it over because she's like getting old. The queen is. So it's like, okay, like you are both a victim of this thing and you're going to become the next person to enact this thing unless you get the hell out so it's like a cycle yes exactly yeah so it's about two people finding each other in just complete isolation and kind of abuse and being told both of their lives that you're fated for this horrible thing um Mm. and then taking care of each other and getting out of there together and it also happens to be just like incredibly beautiful wonderful puzzles like just tactile very satisfying like Again, you hold hands to save. You go and like sit on a couch together and lean on each other's shoulders. So it's just like, oh, it's so moving. And it's just all about like connection as the, as the way to escape um, abuse, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think something else that stood out to me was just that there is this language barrier between the two main characters. Um, like Eco, I think, speaks a couple times in the game, but Yorda, uh, like her dialogue is represented with, um, these like, kind of, uh, pict- pictographic, uh, symbols, like a language mm-hmm. that they created for the game. Um, and just the fact that you never can understand each other, but through the lifeline of touch, um, like I've, everyone I've seen try to talk about this game just starts crying because of the emotional <laughs> impact of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought the language barrier up because it is all about this like evolving relationship where at first it's just like, well, who the hell are you? What do you want? Like mm-hmm. you, you have magical powers. I'm just like some boy with a stick. What are we trying to do here? And like the character, the other character, Yorda just like wanders off to like chase after like doves and like look around <laughs> the castle that you're in. But as your relationship kind of builds, then you're more in sync and you can work together to kind of, fight and solve puzzles and you can tell her like you can gesture like here you need to go over here but she always still has a will of her own so it really is Mm. like an evolving relationship and there is a game that they came up with after shadow the colossus the last guardian that is all about you and this giant beast and like as your relationship evolves he listens to you in a different way not better he never becomes an extension of you it's just that you can communicate Mm. better which is like just so beautifully done I love when games, because I, I think games are often designed to put the player at the center and then you are, you become the master of a world, like the world bends to your will and there's nothing that you can't do. I love games that sort of remind you that you're a guest in the space and that its world exists independently of you and that a character is someone that you can bond with, but that you'll never fully control. I think that's mm-hmm. maybe the closest you can get to forming a relationship in real life. Um, I just, it's a really powerful thing. 
Yeah. And you're really small in this game. Like you're just like a little boy in this huge castle and you have like little wooden sandals on that just kind of clack against the tile in this way that just really sends home like how, how weak you kind of are. Mm. And like, um, there's little, you know, this, the castle's in a state of decay. You eventually get to the area where the sacrifices, the human sacrifices happen. And you can see that it's been happening for centuries just from the number of like sacrificial like pods are there. So it gives you a sense of your, your place in time as well. Mm. Um, it, and so you're just really small and the world is vast and beautiful and horrible. And that is just, I think, part of what makes it so moving and overwhelming to be within. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, were there any other reasons that, um, like, what was what made Eco so important to you at the time that you were playing it? Yeah, um, I think it is. It really just hits on a visceral level some of those themes that I was just talking about. Like when I was playing it at thirteen, I wouldn't be able to say like, "Oh yeah, clearly this is a <laughs> transmasculine allegory about escaping yeah. abuse." <laughs> but it's like that game doesn't have to tell you what it's about. Like it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't tell you. There's like, other people who would play it who would get a completely different resonance with it because it is just too really like, you know vulnerable people protecting each other and a really beautiful transporting environment. So like, you know, we were talking about escapism earlier. It's mm. just so easy to just like disappear into that world because it is so beautiful and it's not asking you to um, achieve any particular thing other than survive and explore and discover mm. what little weird things you can as you go. And, you know, gosh, what, what else was I playing at the time? Like I was playing a lot of like Zelda, which I absolutely loved mm-hmm. and is a beautiful game, but it is more structured, you know, it is more like, here's your rupee count. Here's, your know, yeah. here's how you do a spin attack. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this was just like utterly magical and otherworldly. It's incredible. Devin, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, I've had an incredible time. It's also nice to- <laughs> I wish I could just have Devin around to finish my trailing thoughts when I'm just going derailing and having Devin be like, I'm actually glad you brought up X. Let me, let me take you home. <laughs> um, but Devin, where can folks follow you and learn more about your work? Yeah. So my writing is at devinprice.medium.com. So that's D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E.medium.com. Uh, and then on Twitter, Instagram, all of those places. It's um, at Dr. Devin Price. Dr. Devin Price, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone, you simply must check out Laziness Does Not Exist. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. is up for today's session of pixel therapy thank you for tuning in and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own if you want more pixel therapy come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just two dollars a month plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly if you're not up for contributing monetarily but you enjoyed this episode you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts and following us on instagram at pixel therapy pod That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythoughpodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. 
Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Thank you so much to Devin for the recommendation this week. This week, um, we're so excited to talk to you about the Lighthouse Foundation of Chicagoland, and you can find them at www.lightfoundchi.org. That's lightfoundchi.org. So the Lighthouse Foundation was founded in 2019 and grew out of a community need observed by members of the Lighthouse Church of Chicago, a predominantly Black and queer LGBTQ-affirming faith community. Um, it was founded in response to the sheer depth of macro and microaggressions, threats to safety, and deep unwelcome experienced by Black queer Chicagoans. Um, the organization also found that there was overwhelming support um, from people outside of the Lighthouse Church who wanted to get involved um, and make that community grow, and this led to the creation of the Lighthouse Foundation. The Lighthouse Foundation invests in Black LGBTQ liberation internally by developing Black queer leaders, a cohort that builds community, sets goals, and creates public programming for Black queer people. Um, They also focus on leadership development, capacity building, and economic sustainability to grow Black power through institutional, institutional longevity. Um, they write, we work for Black LGBTQ liberation externally by pursuing community organi- organizing campaigns that challenge institutions to invest in Black communities, address Black needs, and follow Black leadership. Our leaders are queer, multiracial cohort who direct the broader coalition of accomplices for racial equity, where non-Black supporters follow our lead by donating, amplifying our work, and showing up for direct actions. BQC leaders identify targets of our racial justice campaigns, and leaders move targets through the following stages development and assessment, training, initial actions, escalations, deeper actions, and evaluation, all with input from Black queer leaders. So again, check out the Lighthouse Foundation of Chicago um, at lightfoundchi.org, where you can donate, get involved, and learn more about this really awesome grassroots organization. Awesome. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story, mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Bye-bye.